keep on going forward. Life's beautiful, world is beautiful, there are beautiful, beautiful things. What was that, Henrik? Or was that uh, the movie talking via Henrik? <laughs> <laughs> He was right, you know. She chose the wrong gaming console for her apartment. She is losing grasp of who she is. Traitor. Traitor. Spoken like a real Dreamcast fan. Absolutely. Or taken the time wise this film, it should have been Sega Saturn all the way. <laughs> Welcome to the Flick Lab. I'm Karri Oyala, your host of the night. My co-host is Henrik Telkin. Eric Telki studies to be a master of arts. Someday I hear me, myself, and I am media assistant. So we have some grasp of the art of film. The magic word being some. Some. Yeah, the, the, in reality, uh, film analysis, film studies, art studies, everything between, it's a never-ending journey. You are never actually finished with it. It is... We can't be perfect in everything, but we're quite close to it. So today, we have Satoshi Kon's two movies coming here. Henrik's recommendations for this episode. We'll have Perfect Blue, and we also have Millennium Actress, the following film. We're talking about anime in this episode. It's been quite a while. We've done Akira and a bunch of others, but uh, Satoshi Kon, his first film was Perfect Blue, from 1997, followed by Millennium Actress 2001, also Tokyo Godfathers 2003 and Paprika 2006. Something that is very familiar for this director, something that he wants to delve in is the themes of duality and dreamscapes and reality getting meshed with a dreamlike world or several storylines embedding into one. Yeah, the personal identity and, and kind of a shifting aspects of, of one's identity and the and, and the whole concept of what is real and shifting realities, they are, I, I would say, the, the most kind of stable things in, in Satoshi Kon's filmography. They are, uh, to more or less to an extent, in, in all of his films, they are also a major feature in, in Paranoia Agent, the, the one anime series that he also directed. Which might be the one that takes the biggest leap as far as the storyline machines go. If you're into this kind of stuff, definitely check it out as well, dear listener. So something that we have specifically today in his films is the... Duality of fandom, as you put it, or a two-faced fan. Maybe as a second point of interest, at least for you, it would be the production machinery slash capitalism and their connection to the artist and the description of fan culture. And uh, in fact, Satoshi Kon, uh, he has gone on record to say that these two films are a different side of the same coin. Interestingly, there are some themes that do indeed reoccur in these films. They are, and well, this being the Flick Lab, 
it's it's kind of a cheap shotting here really to point the, point this one out and and kind of make it a point of the episode because in in shadows because in these two films perfect blue and millennium actress it is kind of in your face like the similarities between the the two films and and especially the similarities when it comes to or, or the point that they are two sides of the fan coin it's it's kind of obvious, so we can't score really any kind of a deep ridden, ridden we really cracked the case this time, points for us. There are some novels behind uh, these films. For Perfect Blue, there is the novel Perfect Blue Complete Metamorphosis by Yoshikazu Takeuchi. Uh, similarly, there is a novel for Paprika or Paprika. Uh, written by Yasutaka Tsutsui. We will not touch on that film right in this episode, but hopefully we will come back and do the part two of Satoshi Kon's works and delve deeper into Satoshi Kon, the man himself. Uh, today it's just going to be more on the surface. Also, Three Godfathers is a book behind the Tokyo Godfathers film written by Peter B. Kine, which is a particularly short 37 pages. And indeed, for tonight's films, when it comes to The Perfect Blue, it's about uh, a little over 100 pages, so it's a really a blast to read, and I can highly recommend it, actually. It is really a, really a pulse-racing horror novel, really, which doesn't have this, this dreamy escape and, and this hallucinations and delusions like we have in the film. That, that is something that Satoshi Kon wanted to have something different in this film compared to the book, the novel, and uh, the writer agreed for these changes, as long as they would retain some core elements from the novel. Yeah, um, I have, have to confess right at the beginning, I haven't read the original source novel, for Perfect Blue. I do know that it exists. I do know that there is an English translation. I also do know that uh, following Perfect Blue, the perfect metamorphosis, the author has continued on on this, well, let's just say Perfect Blue universe, where he has tackled and, and done more kind of a psychological and horror stories uh, involving the idol culture of Japan. And there, there are, exist at least one short story collection, which is kind of a sister piece or, or later indirect sequel, but keeping with the theme of, of Perfect Morphosis that he has written, that too I also haven't read. But I am aware of, at least partly, on, on the background of, of the film, and I I am aware that, that Satoshi Kon took some really heavy liberties when it came to translating the the original novel to, to a film. And apparently this, or at least as far as I've understood, this was kind of a, getting this, this altruistic liberties as, as, as a director, that was kind of a linchpin for Satoshi Kon, for him to agree to even even make the movie. Like he wasn't super interested in in making the movie when it was first pitched to him that you could direct a film adaptation from this novel. But later on, he he kind of changed his changed his mind 
and he was willing to do it as long as he would get as long as he would have pretty liber, libertine liberties when it came to came came to the adaptation and had the author kind of a stick to his grounds and be and go gone very heavily on the direction no this is my work, body of work you cannot alter it you can't really change it in that case most likely Satoshi Kon would have refused to make the film altogether and it's quite a lot to be asked I'm sure because this is as stated his first feature film and when it comes to the writer sometimes somehow it doesn't surprise me that he has continued to do books related to kind of a pop idol or, or fandom because in his afterward in the book of 91 he does say that as it happens I'm a pop idol super fan though not twisted and obsessive of course uh, that that also would be something that really twisted and obsessive super fan of a pop idol would most definitely say right it it was good to hear in his later afterward from 98 as well quote i was deeply impressed by the beautiful high-quality animation projected on the big screen of the Shibuya Pantheon Theatre, and the delight at seeing my own work nurtured and transformed into something so splendid brought tears to my eyes, end quote. But uh, we can talk about the differences between the book and the film. If you don't want any spoilers regarding the book, maybe you want to skip ahead. Henrik, do you want any spoilers? Well, this is the free club. Like <laughs> the, the the spoiler warnings should be. We most likely we should just rename the whole podcast as spoiler warning the podcast. <laughs> you most definitely if if you don't wanna wanna be spoiled for for the novel or especially for the films, I cannot recommend highly enough that you stop listening right this minute. Because, you know, fo- following the, the next recording session that we are now starting, that following what it will take, I don't know, two or three hours, most likely will be heavily spoiled. Absolutely. We have done over 120 episodes and I'm, unfortunately we never mentioned that there would be heavy spoilers ahead. But we can state it out now that in case you didn't know, this is Spoilers the Podcast. Indeed, a podcast that could have been named aptly as The Autopsy. But in the book, there are several pages that spend time on this uh, so-called fan muttering and thinking to himself that he must kind of preserve that smile of the character, preserve what she was when she, was, when she started her career as a pop idol. The book only keeps the character as a pop idol. She never comes into a movie star but there are differences in the representation of her pop idol life and essentially he tries to keep her innocent like and unchanged forever so he doesn't allow her to develop as a human beyond her 20s or something like this kind of like a virgin appearance in the book a fellow rival idol Eri is jealous of Mima and sends a reporter to stalk her. And there are no delusions, as mentioned. It's all happening for real. It's quite straightforward. It's easy to see how Satoshi Kon would have 
maybe not being too enthusiastic in translating into this film as the as the novel because maybe location wise maybe some theme wise it would have been just a little bit too dull because it's all in in the in the wording and and uh, the, the regions of the vocabulary and the sentences that the characters use which would have been thrown out the window where this been uh, uh, completely adapted to the screen as is so it would have been just another slasher horror film i i suppose yeah and in in return the film that eventually was made perfect blue it is well almost nothing but hallucinations and kind of this really chambered narrative where it's hard to say at the end when does one scene end and when when does the next one begin what what is real and what is is a dream or or some kind of a hallucinatory state of the main character This also being something that is that well, since we are also tackling millennium actress, is is a is a big part of that film also. The the narrative kind of a constantly is utterly shifting. In in Perfect Blue, it shifts from from scene to scene. Like you you have a horrible murder and harsh cut to to film set. Where, where the shooting is happening and in Millennium Actress you, you have these these really harsh cuts from different genre of film. Yeah. Be- before we go fully to Dance with the Rabbit, we could talk a little bit about Satoshi Kon as a little primer for the future. This is primer the episode for Satoshi Kon. Dreaming Machine is one film that unfortunately Satoshi Kon was not able to complete. It was less than halfway in the production and was supposed to be Khan's next project. It went into development hell since Khan's death. Dreaming Machine, it's unsure if this will ever ever be made because the people around the project, they want to find a director who would have the same skills to an extent as Satoshi Kon, so, or the same kind of a way of, of, of structuring the film, so good luck with that. Search of the director continues. Satoshi Kon unfortunately left this world in 2010. So once again, so Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress, as you stated, yes, there are recurring themes, duality, I would say even some open schism towards the modern entertainment industry, the loss of self or purpose, overlapping storylines as pointed out by some of the crew kind of a stereogram story main characters psychologically tortured by something what is the perfect blue henrik uh perfect blue essentially and now we get into the heavy spoiler territory for the films it's it it tells a story of a of a young pop idol from a mediocre-liked pop, uh, t- uh, pop trio, Calm, or Charm, uh, who wants to transition from from pop industry to the film industry and become a real actress. And upon doing that, that transitioning and, and leaving Charm, 
our, our main heroine all of a sudden finds herself in in this kind of kind of a hellscape where there all of a sudden is is a web page uh, uh, on her name claiming to be her diary which has some really intimate relation uh, revelations uh, about her life some which are true some which are completely fictional there also appears to be a mysterious stalker who apparently wants to harm her there are a string of murders or two murders that that happen in in relation to the the film project that he, she has been tied with called double bind and as the situation continues to progress our main heroine starts to lose her grip with reality starts to question who she really is starts to hallucinate her pop idol self as an antagonist entity kind of a looming over her and all of that kind of a in the end culminates into a mediocre plot twist about what really is going on and who is behind all of this um at the end of uh, end of its line at least in my opinion perfect blue is not so much about the the mystery of the mystery story in in the sense of of who is behind all of this and why and how and it's more just about that kind of a personal journey that the main character takes in in order to both to shed her her previous identity her previous kind of a skin that that persona of of the pop idol and to transition into the persona of the film actress and in the progress of doing so she kind of redefines and properly so this time who she really is interesting that you chose the word skin the original book is delving around the subject of skin but quite literally as you can imagine there's also a sentence in the original novel if you want to talk about what is the perfect blue of the perfect blue Quote, usually she felt excited before recording a song, but instead she felt blue, unquote. Of course, this could be completely, uh, maybe has nothing to do with the title itself. And as you see in the film, at least, the, there are different colorscapes where different um, events take place. There's something that takes place in the blue blue scheme of the film. There's something that follows in the red landscape of the film there's also even the green scape of the film which left me a little bit wondering what that green might actually be of course people love to have colorful theories about it no pun intended yeah the green is kind of a mystery the blue and red color theme is is the most obvious one that you quite easily pick when 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 you look at the film and i would say when it comes to the the three colors of the film uh, red blue green red and blue are the ones that are well since they are the most prominent colors or, or they are the most prominent color theme device of the movie they are the most i would say they are the most 
easiest to, to kind of approach and start to, at, at least to a point, start to start to decipher what they could mean in the movie. The green is, is something that kind of just constantly keeps escaping you. You keep noticing it, but whenever you kind of would want to the, the green color to, to stop and stay still for just a moment so that you could start to, to decipher what the green is, is really meaning, it's just, it, there just isn't enough green in, in the film. It's mostly, it's more prominently, it, it's red and blue movie. You know, I've been thinking a little bit about that, the how I have approached in my life the fandom or what kind of fan I have been. I think everybody is to an extent some kind of a fan of something. Maybe not as psychotic as seen here, I hope. But, uh, you know, even being an interviewer gives you a handy excuse to get closer to famous people. At least when you're talking about famous people in the finish scheme of things i remember you know going all the way back way back to the same old nonsense when we were kids henrik we loved to go to the the game world or or go to places to do some interviews for our little tiny little website and you know just by the virtue of having that microphone just by the virtue of having that video camera you could say that, hey, I'm here to interview you, even though I sometimes didn't even have any questions prepared, which was kind of making things awkward for everybody. But there was that it's it's easier to approach people and just by that excuse, you get so close to these people and get to ask all the stupid questions you want. Um, and I found that kind of great and fascinating. It is, there is also a kind of a power dynamic that is at play in in the interview situations like when when you are if you bring a camera into a situation and and you present the situation as an interview what you are also doing you are kind of a, a proposing a demand for that person's time yeah. i have a camera here the camera means that i am an interviewing viewer and what I'm now go trying to do is an interview. You are the, the one being interviewed, viewed. So you kind of have to give your time to me for this interview. There, there is kind of a, no, nobody ever, ever words this out, but the, the kind of a whole notion of, of bringing camera into a place and starting an interview process, there, there is that aspect that you should stop for this moment now and commit your time to me. There is also another factor that kind of a plays in the background of, of interviews is, is the element that the, the one committing the interview or doing the interviewing has a certain amount of, of social power in that situation. He or she can, can have, have the list of questions that are going to be the framework for the interview. And sometimes the ones being interviewed, they, they demand to see that list of questions, but that's kind of a, that, that's not really a typical situation. Usually you can keep that list of questions to yourself as a kind of a secret. You only know what the questions are going to be 
until you propose the questions to the person you are interviewing. And those questions can actually range from, well, from everything to anything. That they can be extremely business related, like they were in, in uh, when we were com doing the interviews for our web page. And they, they can be very analytical or centering around the business. Like we interviewed a lot about, well, how, how is this game franchise go, go, going forward? How, how does this NHL game differ from the previous one? These are industry questions. But mm. it, in the same way, we could have gone to much more personal direction. This is something that we haven't really ever truly hardly done but for example when we have now been committing interviews around well essentially this podcast our questions or at least some of them have been more personal than were the questions that we proposed to our our well quote-unquote victims during back back in the bitterland days when we stayed strictly on the industry side yeah and there is a kind of a theme of voyeurism when you when you bring the video camera to a space you kind of you have the power to capture everything and whatever is captured will be in the can forever and there's nothing you can do about it and in that aspect as well i understand that well in m many situations the person might not even know who you are and what you're going to do with the material whether it's nefarious whether it's good whether it's advancing someone's career whether it's giving them more exposure or not or whether it's worth worth of worth of my time actually to spend 30 minutes talking about games or not and i understand completely that some people want these questions uh, beforehand there's always the risk that you will make somebody look ridiculous and i remember back in even our webpage days that you you really have to start to consider what you're going to leave in what you're going to leave out because even if the person well, it's always a heat of the moment situation when you're interviewing anyone and if kind of everything is on the on the table if it's just a kind of a free-flowing situation then you have to use you're thinking what you really want to stay out there for people to see about this person and you have to make those decisions that was as a kid kind of a teaching moment that you have to make these adult decisions now you can just portray this person in any shit way that it might look like yeah there there is an element of trust that that the one being interviewed has to kind of a place upon you. Like, well, we, in, back in Bitonen, we interviewed, for example, Thomas Puha, who at least used to be a major player when it came to Finnish video game journalism. Yeah. And and kind of a, well, in, in terms of, of Finnish video game journalism, he was kind of a celebrity, he was kind of an idol. Yeah. At, at least to us, and I, I would say to quite a lot of young kids who played video games in Finland back in the day. So there, of course, that there were stakes for him whenever he agreed to be interviewed. He kind of put his trust on us that 
we, for example, won't edit the footage that we shoot in a way that would cast him in a wrong light. We, we wouldn't mess with the material so so that we, we, we would hint that he is saying something that, that he wasn't originally saying. That that's something that he had no guarantees that this wouldn't happen or we wouldn't do this. It was just, he just had to trust us and we kind of had to be worthy of that trust and be responsible in that situation. And at the same time, unfortunately, when it comes to, to interviews, this is something that I've kind of picked up more watching documentaries, but it also applies in into interviews, is, is the fact that Usually your target, that the material you, you are gonna get, when it comes to, you know, the, the selfies, how good documentary or, or an article I can squeeze out of it, this one, it, it kind of depends on exactly in, in how bad shape you can actually capture your target when, when you are doing, doing the interview. Like especially once again, especially in in documentary films, it it is kind of a, a rule of thumb, a, a rule of law in documentary filmmaking that your your documentary is going to be be better if you can capture some kind of a bad side from the, from your target. If you are making a pop culture documentary about well, well let's say about Madonna, the, the pop artist, and your your documentary film is gonna be more better. It's gonna be more groundbreaking if if you can somehow showcase that Madonna is a is a shitty personality, or you can de somehow dig deep into a personal trauma, or you can find a new new side of Madonna. Usually a negative side because that's the ones that gets talked about. This also is something that works, for example, in in nature or business documentaries like Blackfish, the whale documentary that that broke all the grounds and was was in the headlines few years ago. That essentially did nothing except painted SeaWorld in in a negative light. But that's kind of what what it takes to make a good documentary film. It also largely benefits your interview or the article that you are going to make based on your interview. And that's something like I have and am doing some freelance reporting to, to pay the bills and pay, pay the rent. And this is also something that, that has shown up in my work in, in newspaper reporting. That I also have to kind of take this into a consideration, and I, when when I go to interviews a person, I kind of have to be responsible here and and kind of a fight against my better nature. Like there, there is, I would say, like it's it's no surprise that I am a shitty person. So of course I also carry with me this this element that. At times, I really would like to find the scoop when I go 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 and do an interview. I would really like to hit 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 the nail in the head, so to speak. And I kind of have to like keep myself from doing that because that would be dishonest and it would be disrespectful. And you shouldn't cross that boundary. And especially when it comes to documentaries, uh, when we're talking about the art of film in general, 
it is uh, it's, it, it's an act of manipulation every time to make that movie magic, to make it look like a movie. One shot follows another shot to make a story. It's no different actually in documentaries. And there happens a lot of manipulation. Sometimes it is conscious, sometimes, sometimes it's completely unconscious. And the, therein lies the problem for me regarding documentaries. You might have a person that you're going to interview, then it's going to shift into the next shot of, well, let's say a whale. But the whale that they were discussing about wasn't ex exactly that whale. So they used the wrong footage. Maybe it was from the wrong year, had nothing to do with the country they were talking about. And that could have been an accident. That could have been on purpose. We didn't have the stock material. The, the amount of manipulation you can do there and send the wrong message, they are so infinite that in, in, in general, I don't, to be honest, I don't really watch documentaries for this reason. Yeah, I un unfortunately can't share your high ground here because I I'm I'm on the flip side. I'm uh, actually one of the one of the douchebags making documentaries. So <laughs> <laughs> something that might touch a little bit closer as far as fandom regarding this film. Well, I could talk about the the extremely toxic fan culture that I've seen quite close regarding the American hard rock band Guns N' Roses. I jumped into this fandom in 2004, when the original band was no more. So I didn't have this baggage of associating the band with the old members, how it was seen by most of the popular culture. So I, I let the music do the talking and just go from there. And there's there was a Kind of a big shift to more industrial and more experimental with the new band, which had this kind of new identity, obviously. And there were these discerning voices trying to dictate the external appearance of the band, like saying the lead singer Axel Rose is fat, too fat, and uh, is out of breath, or which actually was often true. But fat, not rock and roll enough, looks like a group of clowns, yada, yada, yada. It's not the same anymore after most of the original band members left. Of course it's not. But it doesn't mean it would have to be a worse experience either. But the amount of scorn the new players of the band had received, it's, it's too much. It even got to the point where the bassist of the band would... In frustration, say quotes like get on board or fuck off, referring to the fact that you're either with us with what we're doing or you're against us and we don't care about that. So uh, you can't dictate what the band is about. When, but when the new band members were cast aside in this way, uh, were cast aside in favor of the reunion of some of the old band members, that felt manufactured to me, no matter how well they now were able to get along. And they even enjoyed the heck out of playing together now. And But the transition, it didn't feel fair for the band members that were there in the interim period. So, at least personally, I lost interest with the band, ironically, at that point, when Slash and Duff McKagan came back. 
But even though, speaking of Guns N' Roses, even though you weren't there to take part or, or you know, you you weren't there to, to have all the package in order to take part in, in the whole appearance backlash, if uh, I, I would say you were there on, on a prime time, if if you wanted to to take part on the fan backlash against the many many postponings of the album Chinese Democracy, which I also kind of noticed that that was also something tied to Guns N' Roses, where the fan backlash or the fan reaction kind of got out of hand. Yeah, uh, I never was a major Guns N' Roses fan, so I didn't really follow the, the Chinese Democracy album and, and the process of of bringing that album out. But I do remember that that there was a time when internet had a whole bunch of these these torture games where you had like 2D figure of Axel Roses and you could kind of chop off his limbs or, or hit him in the face or something like this. So like commit acts of torture against the digitalized 2D version of Axel Rose. Yeah. And and these were framed like you can punish Axel for Chinese democracy not coming out. It's it's quite sick actually this feeling of entitlement that no matter how long it's gonna take and no matter how long it did take, this f- feeling of entitlement from from the so-called fans it's quite disgusting. In in fact, Axel Rose kind of has responded in a way to this saying quote the internet is a huge garbage can and and it is like axel yeah. rose is is absolutely correct on that and i kind of even feel that that internet has just gotten worse as as time has gone by like we are we are getting even even more and more kind, kind of a um, extreme and aggressive yeah, it's not even about the anti-intellectualism. It's just, you could say outright the level of stupidity and the amount of IQ points lost when you open the internet nowadays. It's disturbing. But that, unfortunately, like, like that, that, that feeling of entitlement that the fans or some of the fans... Like, like, let's let's be absolutely clear here. Uh, even though we are going to talk about fans in in plural throughout the episode, most likely we are we don't mean fans as in all fans. Majority of the fans, as far as at least I've understood, are pretty be- uh, well behaved, pretty okay people. But and and. The the examples that that we have been talking about most likely will be talking about the examples touch upon by Perfect Blue. Those are kind of the the marginal fans. We are talking about one to per, perhaps something like from one to five percent of, of the fan base. Yeah, right. Yeah, that that let, let's. Like that, perhaps is is important to get out of the way before these discussions go any further. Just so that everybody knows that we are not hinting that that the fan base itself, like the fans at large, are some kind of a beasts. That's not the case here. We are st- talking about the marginalized, the, the marginal group that unfortunately ex- 
exist inside the fandoms. But <clears throat> once again, once again, they, they we would kind of a make the the whole discussion too too hard to have have and too complicated to follow. If we would in every single argument, we would just you know stop to to pinpoint that. Where we are now talking about that this this one to five percent of fans. Yeah. So sure. we are we are generalizing here somewhat, but when it comes to to fans, you mentioned the the whole theme of entitlement from the fans' side, and that unfortunately that is something that appears to be very heavily tied into well you being an idol, you being a celebrity. It it's not just a case for Guns N' Roses. It's not just case for for J-pop. It's not just case for the main hero heroine of of Perfect Blue. It's just, it's something that that kind of constantly seem to happen whenever you have a major celebrity. It it has happened with with uh, for example American pop stars like Miley Cyrus. Or you know larger pop groups like Backstreet Boys or Spice Girls, where there, there has been this uh, this kind of a perceived notion that you get the image about about the the target of your fandomism, your idol, and and he or she appears to you in in some light. Sometimes this fandom, of course, gets into the spheres of to the murky end of. The death of John Lennon, and there are many other cases similar to that. Dime, Dimeback Daryl from Pantera, he, he was killed by a fan, or for example, Rebecca Schaefer, a 21-year-old actress, shot in front of her porch. Yeah, and even when, when it doesn't go into these extreme lengths, like committing actual murders for, for even then, there is this this really controlling aspect when it comes to to fandoms. Like you, you made made the the brought up the notion that that with Guns N' uh, uh, Roses and with with Axl Rose, the the fans started to dictate who were the real band members and who should be allowed to stay in the band or appear as, as members of Guns N' Roses, and also dictate the appearance of Axel Rose, the, the fat comments that you brought up. And Axel Rose really is, isn't the only one who has to go through this treatment. It's, I, I would say, almost all the superstars, especially the female ones who really get to hear about have they been putting up weight or does does this outlook now make make the idol look like a slut? Is uh, is she whoring herself out there? Uh, this was I I remember that this was the major crux of of the Miley Cyrus backlash. There's some of that uh, slut whore type of uh, discussion in the book of Perfect Blue, and in the film as well as in the book and millennium actors there is a bit of that terrorizing of the female and we get the kind of a woman's perspective albeit uh, mainly produced by males i believe there are a couple of cliches characterization cliches that i would like to bring to the board 
the me mania to creep, the depiction of a killer as a less than handsome, this drooling weirdo cliche. In Tokyo Godfathers, it's the strange sexual character who is not per se bad, but is viewed as bad or is slurred. In Paprika, it's the fat man. And actually, in Perfect Blue, it's the roomy is the fat girl. Yep, yep. I, I, I was, I was. Since, since you start mentioned the cliches, I, I started to wait. When, when does Rumi show up? Because <laughs> that, well, spoiler warnings have already been given. The major plot twist, that the final, the big one in Perfect Blue is that that the the, the main culprit behind the main, Perfect Blue's main characters, Mima's hardships, has throughout the film been her manager from the charm days who still is is with her Rumi who has this kind of a changing and shifting weight problem as as the film goes on uh, throughout the film she is constantly being portrayed visually as as a well not as fit as as the idols not not as fit as Mima She's kind of a choppy, but especially towards the end, especially after the final plot twist has happened, and and you get to see that that room is behind, be, behind, well, essentially everything that has happened. She has been controlling and manipulating the, the creepy fan, and she's the one who be behind the murders and. Most likely also behind the letter bomb and and the threatening faxes and basically everything that that money has to Mima has to go through, that's all Rumi is doing. And once that revelation happens, you kind of notice that Rumi all of a sudden becomes even fatter, and she is constantly being kind of a, there's there's a whole chase scene that happens at the very end of the film, and there you are, Rumi is being contrasted against the, the hallucination of Pop Mima. And you 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 see see the you have the these these double images. Like the the, the, the pop the sling fit pop idol Mima is, is running on the running on 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 the street chasing our main hero in the real Mima. And at the same time you, you get a glimpse on on some kind of a mirror, a window and there you see see Rumi, the the real person chasing her, and and she's this this really swollen, ugly, fat, almost of of a, a mass of a person who's who is sweating and and snarking her teeth and all of that. So you yeah. you have most definitely when it comes to Perfect Blue, you you have that 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 visual presentation of. Of kind of a cliche evil and cliche ugliness, the the, the stalkerish fan is is almost disfigured and, and has a has a really bad teeth and and mm. Rumi as as disclosed is is overweight especially during that that, that final chase scene. Yeah, and uh, touching a little bit on the Tokyo Godfathers, I felt that the 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 gay slurs were particularly not needed. I, d- I didn't understand why 
they had to do it and why they had to kind of victimize this transsexual character. Muri has taken this avatar character as part of her split personality, kind of the, the perfect image, the, the, the Mima that she sees, or weirdly actually it shouldn't be all that she sees if she is indeed her manager. She should know that she is also a private real person, not just the avatar person on the stage. But what do you know? What, what happens with split personality brain when you take on the different character? I think this this is kind of a nicely adapted from the novel where you have parts where it's stated that that Muri wanted to be a pop idol before, and this would kind of explain her psychotic behavior in the film in a way. I don't think it's mentioned in the film. No, there's no mention of that. There really is, is not that much background to her, her character altogether in the film. To a point where it's kind of even hard to say what it exactly is supposed to be that she's supposed to be to, the, to these girls, to what she's supposed to be to Mima. And rolling all the way back to our interview talk, there's also something when you when you get to personally discuss kind of everything with your sort of idols or public persons, that image of them being some kind of a unreachable or godlike figures that fortunately crumbles down and you start to see these people as real human beings. And actually, I'm not sure how many people in general kind of uh, get, get to have this kind of a outlook. Maybe it has helped a lot now because in the last 20 years, internet has boomed and, uh, you know, everybody's a goddamn celebrity and we get to so close to people, even the kind of the really high celebrities that perhaps people people are not as obsessed as they were in the VCR times, maybe, but uh, yeah, what, what do you make of that? I don't know, I... I, I would like to say that we may be even more obsessed these days, but most likely that's not the case. But I kind of don't believe that, that the, the level of obsession has really decreased mm. on, on our time. It may have shifted a bit, but the when, when watching Perfect Blue, the, the, the big question that, that came to my mind was the parasocial relationships that we have with other people, the, those who we kind of see as somehow being public figures. And what I started to really think about was the, the whole streamer scene, the YouTubers, who the, the whole scene has its roots in kind of everyday people. Like like when YouTube originally started, when when the whole streaming thing or, or the vlogging thing started, it really wasn't anything that that great or big. It was it was some Swedish guy in his living room with a mic and a crappy camera, babbling about something. Uh, it, it really wasn't 
like the original the, the origin days of of youtube they, they really weren't like pewdiepie like we know pewdiepie today mm. the the whole the, the roots and the, the origin is is kind of in in much more mundane much more original kind of quote unquote original but as as youtube as as streaming has gone forward as it has advanced we have gotten into this realm where that the youtubers can be bigger than ever sometimes even bigger than real celebrities these days where the youtube channels have become more and more produced to a point where these days you you have actual production houses be behind these youtube celebrities when you when actual comp companies are trying their best to make youtube content and with that that kind of advancement with that kind of a shift that the celebrities in youtube they have become even bigger but they also have had to deal more and more with growing fandoms and yeah. that also has included fandoms that have become more and more aggressive more and more demanding and it it has actually created a real problem for these youtubers because once again that the whole main concept when they started started to be youtubers they, they started as everyday ordinary people with no real training with no real counseling on how you deal with fans how you deal with fan demands and fan pressure you all of a sudden just slowly became a huge name felix all of a sudden came a pewdiepie and in in that transition to become a pewdiepie that the everyday person felix has all of a sudden had to deal with fans you know coming to his door coming to his apartment breaking into his property he has uh, at least if you take pewdiepie's word for it he has had to move what like two or three times because Whoa. the fans have deciphered where he's living and they have been just bombarding his home Whoa. so we we kind of we, we still have this element we easily we want would like to think that that with youtube and and with everybody now having camera and everybody pushing doing content even even two Finnish assholes like ourselves doing interviews and doing content, we are somehow leveling the playing field. Playing field. We are kind of a lessening the, the this whole the, this whole circle that goes around between someone who is famous and and those who are the, who are fans of that famous person. But I'm not entirely certain if we are actually doing it like if you are really fixing the problem or, or if the problem is being fixed perhaps the only thing that we are doing is we are we are taking it more we are just you know taking more fans away from you know your hollywood mega celebrities and we are just kind of kind of a you know spreading them out to to youtube stars and and your pewdiepie so that george clooney these days he doesn't have as many trillions and millions and jillions of fans because some of those have transport uh, transferred to to be pewdiepie fans or the flick lab podcast fans or, or the flick, flick lab podcast <laughs> fans but we are but but the, 
the, the core problem, the dysfunctional fans still exist. And now when previously it was just George Clooney's problem, now it's George Clooney's and PewDiePie's problem. This is an interesting conundrum in the way that YouTube has brought that the celebrities, I would say more down to earth or given them a more quotidian, quotidian value that everybody is now there to give Q&A sessions and live sessions and hey, hello, I'm here at my home and ask whatever you want type of a deal, which in some cases, I guess, would make it more mundane and make them more close to you and like in a way that you would accept that these are also just people and they live kind of ordinary lives sometimes. But I can see where this would go with some weirdos who now are taking, you know, kind of zooming into the pixels and checking out what they have on their bookshelves and uh, tracking down some element there to find out their address or where they were last week and stuff like that. Yeah, and that, unfortunately, I, I would say that is something that goes hand in hand with with fame, with being being a celebrity. Because there is kind of a, there is this element in, into into be in, into a celebrity where that the celebrity or the industry behind that celebrity they are kind of a demanding love like that that's the, the whole whole idea behind behind super fans like you somebody who goes to every single Madonna concert. Nightwish has has fans who follow the band whenever that band is on tour, goes from country to country, spends godless amounts of money on hotel rooms and plane tickets and concert tickets to to see every single concert. Hmm. That's kind of what what these celebrities or or the industry behind them is demanding. Like these kind of fans, they they are. A, great fucking news for a, for a band or a YouTuber. YouTubers especially demand this kind of a devotion, a certain type of love. You are supposed to, to follow them. You are supposed to smash the like button. You are supposed to subscribe. They all want that. And all of these are kind of acts of commitment to, to, the, to that idol, to the celebrity, to the one you are... You, to, to someone whose fan you are. But the thing here is that that all this devotion, all, all this kind of love, that that's essentially, in my opinion, what, what, what drives these people, what, what it essentially is about. It is about need to be loved. They want the fans to love them. And that love... Like in in all parasocial relationships, it's one sided. Yeah. They they want that you love them, but once again, because you never share space, you never share anything. You are going to love them, but they don't even know you are exist. They don't love you back, and because there there is this this aspect, because the love is so one sided. I think that's actually one of the reasons why it can get so goddamn toxic and so so dangerous because in in this this one-sided love that the one doing the loving the fan 
and also the celebrity to an extent, they don't have to take the responsibility that, you know, kind of goes w with love. Like if, if you are in real relationship, yeah. you, you have to take responsibility. You have to be there for the good and the bad. You have to see the good and the ugly. But in parasocial relationship, this this whole element of of reality it it just isn't there. You you get to to, to pick and choose that the idol will always be perfect, and and you are always supposed to to love your idol through actions and to, to through monetary means. Buy CDs, buy concert tickets, click like and subscribe. All these, all these things. Go, go to the cons to, to have have an autograph. All of this jazz. Yeah, sometimes I think what would be the best for a musician. I don't think there's a, like a universal universal rule, but some artists take the stance that yeah, they want to be as close or like connect really with their fans and they want to they are kind of of the, of the social nature they want to have a lot of fan events and talk in person with as many fans as possible and make them feel feel as good as possible and uh, you know just be there as a friend and then there are the people who are kind of like Axel Rose actually who is a is a total hermit basically from the public eye minds his own business on his Malibu mansion and is rarely connecting and out and about with, with the fan base. And I understand the, both of these sides. What I sometimes wonder is, what is the more effective way of communicating? Actually, is it something that op makes people obsessed and bigger fans if they feel that the, the the target of their fandom is more unreachable and does it kind of devaluate uh, the item of work or the target of worship if you connect too much with your fans just something to tinker with yeah it's uh, once again i'm not any kind of authority on on the subject matter yeah we don't have to the flick lap being the, the the biggest podcast on on the podsphere and and Finland being the hotbed of all, all the hot podcast action <laughs> but i i mean this is kind of a deal that that you and i or at least i i we also have to to at least think about every now and then because as as a podcast we also are kind of a public entity not 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 really super super famous not not big in in any stretch of imagination but we are still on the public sphere like we push content to to internet that is a public place and that we do have listeners i i i know that because because our our listeners have love to every now and then make the repeating point how I am I am the bad guy of the podcast, <laughs> and and should be punched in the in the face. <laughs> so so somebody does does listen to us, and and we we do have have some followers, not much, but we we do have some, and as such, 
we also we we do have a certain well we are we are not celebrities but we do have a certain type of authoritarian kind of kind of a status like you and I we talk about films in a film podcast and to a listener that translates as that we are professionals we have insight into movies we know what we are we are talking about you you here you get opinions reviews ideas and with with all this this you know us us being on on youtube us us being on podcast process us being on spotify or all that there also kind of also exists the need to to grow the listener base i'm guessing that you worry about this more than i do but when it comes to that when it comes to being followed when it comes to being listened to i guess there on, on that realm it would help you if it, it would help us if we would be some type of active and social and famous highly followed all those things when it comes to to kind of a my side on on doing this podcast i i do the flick lap mostly because i i have a have a personal mission they 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 like those who have have been listening for us for for some time most likely have already picked up on the fact that i keep on yammering about people having to talk talk to each other and and stopping to listen to each other and and the the value of of their existing communication how we need to have more and more communication it it's it it's preachy and i most likely i do that way too much i apologies for that one but that's kind of the reason why i do flick lab to me flick lab is is more or less a tool to kind of to preach the message and in in that regard i think perhaps for me it it may serve better or or it, at least it's easier for me to, to be kind of the social hermit that's also something that you very easily see if you for example follow a facebook page where one side of of the duo is is doing way more of of facebook and way more of connecting than than the other side me being the the shit eating heel here <laughs> the, to to be frank um uh, i would like to concentrate on more on doing this that we're doing now and less on on the constant stream of communicating that is expected from of, of everyone really nowadays but uh, but yeah talking of people that you might want to hit with a brick not me personally but if you got those feelings it just might be that you're a musician and your manager is causing you problems from where we get to the discussion point of capitalism and how it manipulates many sectors the entertainment industry raping your soul sort of even visually in the film when Mima repents while she gets fictionally raped in scene quite graphic scene to add that like th- this is supposed to be a movie that goes in the you, you know public showings like 
when it comes to there's a fictional film the double bind that is being shot in in perfect blue and that's the film that that's going to be mima's first film real film role that's how she's supposed to transition from pop idol to an actress and since it and it is raised that apparently that that film is being directed by well at least a relatively known director apparently that the scriptwriter of the film is some kind of a hotshot well-known scriptwriter so most likely that film is supposed to you know play in theaters or at least at least semi-publicly on on tv and yet, when it comes to the rape scene that is being shot in, in the sets of Double Bind, there, there are two notions that, that raise up. The first one comes from, is it one of the cameramen who comments on the fact that they would like to shoot this, the rape scene in a real club, but the content is of such nature that no club would actually take the film production inside. And the the second thing that, that you very clearly see is that the, the rape scene itself is extremely graphic. It includes upper body nudity. Like Mima, who still, you know, remember this, is a transitioning pop idol. All of a sudden now has her breasts out on camera. Yeah, taking advantage of her, basically... So yeah, so so when when it comes to you 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 mentioned rape, and even though yes yes in in Perfect Blue it still is a film shoot. The the actor the, the, there was a precise moment where the actor who is supposed to be raping Mima's character even you know stops and they they halt the, the shoot for a moment and and during that moment. That the actor playing the rapist even apologizes and Mima is like, it's it's okay, you know, we are professional, let's go continue on. So that the film makes very strong point that that it's not a real rape. But yeah, even yeah. though still as a scene, it is pretty damn rapey. By the way, when it comes to graphic content, violence-wise, that kind of a bloody violence you get a hell of a lot more of that in the in the novel compared to the much praised violent scene with the stabbing in the eye by the pizza guy and and all that but capitalism yeah even if this film is Shotoshi Kon's hate mail towards what the film industry has become it's it's not really a powerful argument if you think about capitalism's modus operandi on the whole which is to make money in every sector so capitalism which denounces morality by default and therein lies kind of the issue of any monetary system for me of course there there could be an econom economist on the podcast to explain it further but this is my view it's it's already been proven that capitalism is a bit of a pain by the virtue of the existence of these massive multinational corporations where it's not really about the people at the top lacking morals but 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 that no one is at the at the controls these these are corporations that are so huge that the head has no idea what the tail is doing here in a way 
many of the brands that we know internationally, they are just that, they are brands with no kind of faces, key people in control of it. Of course, there are the CEOs and all that, but the, but these machines, machines are huge and the brand is running on autopilot in that sense, powered by big masses of people. It's become faceless. So capitalism is good at mass producing inequality and rewarding psychopathic behavior. For example, these CEOs who <laughs> might be kind of a pushy to get what they want sometimes. The more you disregard your humanity, I believe there is more to be gained monetary-wise in many, many cases. Maybe not always, but but you get to just, you, you kind of lose yourself so that you can gain more by pretension. And the, 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 the prime incentive of capitalism for me is is iniquity. So you might counter that. Henry can say that statistically capitalism has actually reduced in inequality. Well, yeah. What what we used to have were more people below this absolute poverty line. But what we now have is is less people below the absolute poverty line. Yeah. And what I would say to that is that we also now have larger and larger portion who live in abundance. And in the world of excess, we can communicate with these bullshit machines over the internet, for example. This is not, even though Finland likes to think it's it's not something that we need to survive or or keep our lives rolling. So um, it's kind of an accidental side product of technical technological advancements. We've accidentally pulled a higher percentage above the absolute poverty line here. So to say that capitalism is effective for reducing that inequality is a bit like saying I used to walk, but I can move faster now thanks to my electric wheelchair after I broke both of my legs on purpose or something like this. Yeah, and there also is is this kind of a really dehumanizing meta side to capitalism like in in order for the capitalism to to truly work it has to to kind of adapt this mental state where it sees sees tools and it sees products it it sees ways to how somehow produce something and this is kind of something and this is something that that you see when you look at well like perfect blue is is looking at film industry or for example the, the whole pop industry that we have going on uh, the perfect blues narrative begins with with j-pop industry and well keeping with j-pop even though this is not just you know j-pop's problem it's also in k-pop and in western pop music but well if we are to keep it on on perfect blues opening there are these these elements when it comes to j-pop industry that are actually pretty damn horrifying when when you really stop to think about it the the whole industry itself is extremely regulated regulated from the industry side sides side when it comes to the actual performers that the j-pop idols like in in these circles, if you are like Mima is a, a J-pop star, an idol, 
the industry can regulate your hobbies, it can regulate your dressing, it can regulate who you go out with. Mm. Your social life, like like your your personal relationships, you can't, for example, have a relationship with a wrong type of person. Your your sex life can can be re- regulated, and in a, in a twisted way, to tie it once again back to to fans and Axel Rose Rose being fat and all that, it's it's not just the industry, but it's it's also the fans. I stumbled upon. A video while doing this background research i think on youtube where there was this uh j-pop idol who in tears uh, said sorry to her audience that she had been seen outside with a with a with a male person in this way that just suggested that he would be her boyfriend or, or it would be a date situation for me, I, I didn't understand anything. I guess I need to delve more into the J-pop culture, but that being a, a problem in itself, it's, it's, it's horrifying. Yeah, I may have stumbled on, on the same video or then different video. Yeah. This, this, this is not one, one of a kind incident. And the, the nasty side is that Sometimes even this type of mistake showing up with a, outside with a wrong person, it it has caused J-pop stars their careers. It it has led even in West, like with with American pop stars, it has has led into public backlashes from from media and especially from the fans, and the industry. For example, in in J and K pop has taken the the safety measures to to prevent this from happening to such an extremes that, if I'm understood correctly, the pop stars may be demanded to to live in in certain house. Like, let's say that you have a boy band, that the members of that boy band has to have to live in in one house together like they they are forced they are demanded to coop up with with each other so, so that they wouldn't show up show up outside with a wrong person so that that they can when they are in inside when they are quote unquote in their own home they can be you know in according to a schedule be pumping out social media content they, they may have timetables when they are, are allowed to leave the house, go outside like fucking regular normal people, that there may be regulations on how they ha- have to dress, ha- how they have to act with people. And people wonder why boy bands always break up or these kind of groups in general. And what is kind of as well disturbing is that when these people sometimes try to start up their solo careers. I've actually, I've, uh, I think this is the situation with, uh, for example, Henry Lau, who is a famous South Korean Canadian pop music, kind of a multi-talent pop musician, and he had major, major troubles starting his solo career because the the producers weren't supportive of of what he was trying to do. I believe they wanted to just see the guy back in the in the boy band or whatever whatever you call them in that part of the world. And 
So it took years and years and years of pain for him to get that started. So uh, fans might see this kind of a solo pursuits as well in not such of a good light. They might say that this this is wrong. This is not where you belong. Yeah, and to, to remind everybody that this is not just an Asian problem. This is not just a J-pop problem. Yeah. This is also a problem that also happens in, for example, in in professional like show wrestling, the, the WWE shit. Also, that, that's the exact same fucking thing. Like you, you in in WWE world, you you have fictional characters that these wrestlers portray, and there, there are good wrestlers and there are evil wrestlers. And for example, the 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 good guys and the bad guys can't show up outside together because they they have to. That there is this this whole concept called kayfabe which is them having to keep keep there's a show going on all the time all the time and because of this even even if if two wrestlers a good guy and a bad guy they, they may be friends in real world but they can't be friends out in the public because that that whole whole antagonist dynamic that they then portray when the show's on, that that has to be protected, that's mandated on, on their goddamn career, uh, on, on their contracts. And in, in for example, in, in J-pop, that there exists a kind of a twisted dynamic between the industry that makes the, con- the, the contracts and between the fandom. Like in 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 J-pop scene, there is this term, and I'm not entirely certain if I if I pronounce this right, but chinitai, uh, which roughly translates, as I've understood, as bodyguards, and this this doesn't mean bodyguard in in the sense that it's in that like you you jump and take a bullet for the person you are being hired. To, to protect, but in in the sense that these uh, chinitais, the, these bodyguards, they are fans of some idol, and their job, the 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 job that the industry, that the production houses wish that they they do is that they safeguard the image of of the person they are fans of. Yeah, like they. they they, that they they buy the merchandise and they make fanzines and and they post on it and as they do this they they reestablish the, the made up personality of the star and at the same time they they defend that image or that construction from you know fans of of some other star if if it's a pop trio you know if necessary against the fa- the, the fans of of two other members of that same goddamn trio and they also kind of enforce the the producer's wishes and the producer's vision of how the, the star is supposed to be to the star itself because when the star goes online he or she can read all these positive you know fan posts how how good Good she she looked 
in, in this dress, how well he behaved when in public, how how they really like that he is now going out with this person. It's way better than the previous person. And and the star kind of gets stuck in, in this, this loop that I have to appease the fans, so I have to continue acting in this certain way. And it's it's like... Yeah. It's two sides telling you how you should exist, and both sides can be making money or social credit on on you know from your back. Like like the, the production houses, they they obviously get get a cut of the profits, but well, like for example, Perfect Blue once again showed you that the fans also can have their own much more smaller but still a monetary market going on around the idols. Perfect Blue starts with the with the scene of with the fans outside of uh, that that some type of Power Rangers show stage play thing that is going on and and the fans one of them is is selling apparently some kind of a homemade fan magazine about the band and there, there's a next group of, of fans who are talking about the extraordinary prices that that some some recording that that exists has like it's super expensive recording because it has has one of the girls that uh, it, it has Mima singing without the you know you know that the, the other two members of Jam so you get to hear her real voice so it's really rare and therefore expensive and there's also social credit that these fans can exchange. Somebody has that recording. Somebody is making the fan magazines. So in fan circles, they can be seen as more valuable, kind of a higher, more hardcore fans, something that the other fans should also look upon. Yeah, that's another tangent that you could take, that, for example, if these discs would be pressed only in 20,000 copies, they would be collectors items because of the artificial scarcity uh, applied on them and this gets way more nefarious when we are talking about life-saving products such as well vaccines would be the kind of a hot topic right now or wells in africa or what have you uh, i have to point out that of course capitalism it's still our best tool at combating combating inequality as far as i know but we are all selling out thanks to this system that rewards pursuit of self-interest over the group interest. And sadly, self-interest here is not the same as group interest. Never mind these debates about whether to allow or ban prostitution. We are all prostitutes in this system. We kind of are. That unfortunately kind of also includes... The podcast in, in question. <laughs> kind of. But, uh, yeah, there might be even more to for me to tackle about the idol culture, fandom, otakuism, psychosis even, in Millennium Actress. We are kind of deluded, Henrik. We are the consumer, consumers of cinema. We are also deluded. We seek for the perfect movie over and over and over again but everything you see is more or less the same it's kind of a loop a wormhole we never get exactly 
what we're craving for, I guess. I, just like the reporter in this film, he's completely obsessed about this actress, Chioko, the ideal story told by his his idol. But, but something there's something about this endless chase that turns him on, even gets into creepy realities enough when she's a little girl, I, I've felt. But uh, he's turned on and he's a bit jealous because he has been, he has self-deluded himself to the level of believing that, that I guess that he was the love of her life in some aspect, or, or maybe that's, uh, apart from not being the kind of stabby kind of fan, like in Perfect Blue, here also that this, this the fandom reaches even perhaps creepier tones than in Perfect Blue, because he starts to believe that he's been part of her life in some kind of a meaningful capacity and suddenly he seems to believe it there's some some humbleness about him but one meeting in real life and he he too wastes his life chasing a fake story and the enigma that she has become this avatar which once again is kind of in her in, in his head satoshi khan is kind of doing the manipulation for the audience here i i want to kind of a put a flag here that that he might be doing that unknowingly unconsciously and it, it's just that my it's just my interpretation of the film and not necessarily at all even the creator's interpretation or intention to me personally kind of perfect i i kind of saw perfect blue as as the or perfect blue as as the more sinister that kind of a more cynical approach to fandom millennium actress in my opinion is is the one that is more hopeful more healthier version of or more healthier look at, at fandoms or it depicts more healthier fan maybe healthier but i don't know if it's healthy we can discuss that yeah i i guess we have to because i'm kind of on the opposite side on on when it comes to millennium actress where to me perfect blue is is the cautionary tale of of fan culture of having a fan millennium actress to me read as as kind of the the that joyous that the hopeful like like this could be what what having a fan could mean to, to me millennium actress is kind of a an example of para well essentially once again parasocial relationship but a parasocial relationship that ends up working where it has a positive result and where it has benefits whereas perfect blue is is once again it shows the how unhealthy how dangerous and and how sick that relationship can get Speaking of millennium actress, so here we have as the centerpiece characters the the uh, hermit actress Chioko, and this is a bit fanatic reporter as well as his cameraman friend, sort of the voice of reason in in many scenes, kind of questioning what the hell is happening, and um, it's the first Satoshi Kon film which features Susumu Hirasawa 
which Satoshi Kon was a longtime fan of as a composer. And I would say that the film has quite strong soundtrack. In Perfect Blue, the different scenes based on their coloring or what was going on was strongly tied to the music that was played during those moments. And here the composer is trying to communicate kind of a, the loop of life, something repeating. This goes a little bit into the history of Japan presenting various references to Japanese history, Edo period, Manchukuo. They say that it's also the last major animated film which was created with hand-inked cells, because at this time most of the studios were going into digital direction. There's no book regarding Millennium Actress. Uh, there, this story is loosely based on the lives of two actresses from Japan, Setsuko Hara, and Hideko Takamine. I feel that there's a lot of meaningless echoes in the film. There's, this is already kind of hinted at at 2950. Quote, you will burn forever in the flames of eternal love uttered by this ghostly figure. And uh, the key, what, what is the key about? Is it the key to somebody's heart. Why is this item important? I feel that it's not necessarily important at all. The, the, the film is about the love towards whatever you want to see in it and the chase of that love and love for the chase as the closing lines give it to you outright. Uh, yeah, it's not about that Khan is unwilling to show you the, the, the way in or resuscitate the way in uh, the way cinema in Japan was, but he wants to celebrate the feeling that nostalgia, that the way this these memories are made golden, as we say in Finland, an illusion made up by our minds, the sugar coating of our past. So we're kind of overstating and justifying something in our brains. Often in this situation, when we do this, that something that really wasn't impactful or meaningful, maybe in any way, our memories manipulate us to believe that they had some meaning. In the same way as I was studying some bullshit and I didn't feel that it had some value. Uh, but yeah, on, the, on the retrospect, my brain wants me to believe that it had some value. Yeah, it, yes, it had some value, but was it worth going through all those years of studying something that you're not feeling passionate about. No, but of course you've learned things on the way. Yeah, our memories manipulate us. Uh, it's, the, it's the same way that Chiyoko, as the main character, ha has wasted her entire life, as far as I see it, for chasing this something that doesn't even exist, or perhaps never even coexisted as like love between the rebel and Chiyoko. She's chasing shadows of a man of whose face she can barely see through the runtime and uh, also points out that she has forgotten the entire face. Also, this character seems promiscuous to me. There's a quote, a man took all of Eiko's earnings, then he ran off with another woman, end quote. This could have been a reference to something else, but, but, but I took it as the reference to this guy. So... Summa summarum for me, seems like the guy is a piece of trash. 
he is most likely even an art robber. Like, he never shows the painting to her that he is carrying. I, I took this as immediately as does some kind of a guy who is running with some painting to, to sell it off somewhere. Stolen from some, some, from some art gallery. I, on, on my end, I'm kind of on the opposite side of basically everything that you just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to me, that, that dude was was just a leftist artist. That the painting belonged to him. The, I always took that the painting, even though, yes, it mysteriously, when you first see the artist, he's running away from the cops. He's carrying the painting. The painting is covered by by the cloth. So you never see what the painting is, but I always took it that it, it was the painting that that he made a huge fuss about how it's it's unfinished and how he wants to finish it in while freezing outside and dying of of hypothermia. But more to the the whole did Chioko uh, kind of a waste waste her life in in J when when she was chasing chasing the the artist <sighs> the the whole whole Chioko and artist deal once again it's not exactly para parasocial but it 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 is teetering into that direction like what what in, in the in the heart of of millennium actress in, in the heart of Chioko and the painter, there, there's a love story. Chioko, as a young girl, has a chance encounter with, with a mysterious painter who is running away from the cops. Chioko hides the painter for a few for a short time, and they they have a few exchanges. They share some talks during the time that the painter is hiding, and Apparently, during this time, they they all both become deeply affectionate with each other. At least, the painter becomes the the love of Chioko's life, etc. And okay. Chioko spends the rest of her life desperately trying to refind the painter, who, as as it eventually turns up out, has already been dead for quite some times because the Japanese police police torture and kill him. In order to, you know, make him to or force him to to turn over his leftist friends. So in in that sense, yes, Chioko has faced, wasted her life. But because of her chase, she has in the end an entire career as a well-known film actress. She does have at least for a while a marriage, which. Okay, is is not the marriage she originally wanted. It's kind of a marriage that eventually she accepted because she was getting old and apparently she was never gonna find the painter again, etc. But she still does have a life. She her life still, at least on some level, does have a meaning. She becomes something. And since you were asking about, you know, yourself, like, did, did you waste your time? I'm not entirely certain if, if you did, even if you didn't feel passionate about what you were once studying, even if you're not in the profession at the moment, but you still picked up a ton of skills. You picked up something that you may 
even even you know sometime in future still somehow put on use you may have mm. made connections friendships that may carry even today i i don't know what what, what your situation is or what resulted from it but i i'm not i i am a bit hesitant to say that you necessarily have been wasting your time as the same way i'm i don't see that chioko in millennium actress wasted her life well my brain certainly has convinced me that since i studied two fields r- related to to media that i now have a, like a wider scope of 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 the media spectrum uh, in general so i can easier kind of see the the fuller picture of what's going on but yeah but regarding the the, the film it seems that it seems to me that this is suggesting that there's always something that keeps us going which is again tying to our previous themes from Hugo something will keep us going even if it's meaningless and it will make you feel like you've wasted all your time on on meaningless pursuits sometimes and in that light the, the key might represent nothing at all it it might not have meaning i'm sure that this could yeah yeah this could be satoshi kon's just appreciation towards japanese cinema and being a cutesy love story it could just be that but satoshi kon probably didn't mean it to appear in any of this way that i've made made the case here but but what i what i get from the film is that she wasted her life indeed on meaningless pursuits maybe had a career on the way was a lot unhappy when trying to find this previous love even the marriage that she seems to be in is built on a lie from the beginning where the the the, the husband and this actress older actress seem to know something about this key and where it has been been all these years for me there's no romance if you are wasting your life to the perfect ideals or wallowing in the past for god's sake i've done my great share of that and i have regrets that my my life hasn't proceeded always like the perfect movie and it, it never will and i've only myself to blame to some parts of it but uh, it's better to keep on moving and don't get stuck in the past uh, there are some people who constantly want to reference the past and uh, i don't know what to to what end the people of of the past they never see it in the same way as your brain sees it you you won't get back the same ideal world that you th- you think you had but you actually never had it say that you know you had a great experience camping somewhere and you know, it was an experience for you but maybe it was a completely different experience for the other guy and they've moved on so we won't be boarding any space rockets here or or go to the moon like it might be going in the film you might even think you already boarded some kind of a space rocket but it's kind of in your head the avatar the the illusion of you might be playing a role there as well you think you're something and experiences differ but then again when it comes to millennium actress chioko most definitely is something and and because of her chase she ends up boarding a rocket 
okay, it's a, it's a, it's a space rocket on, on a film set, granted, but you know, it's, it's the next best thing. Like at the end, where, where she was originally going towards to was, was, you know, inheriting her mom's shop that, that sells mm-hmm. something never established and instead uh, and through the, the whole chase for for the for the love she never reached she did she ended up you know ditching the the mom's shop and having her own career becoming becoming her own person yeah and even that career was because of she was in love yeah so it may not have been entirely bad for her like once again that mm. that love to, to me that the love didn't read as as her wasting her life and her just being stuck in the past and not being able to move forward well uh, she wh- was in a way she never got over the painter but in every every other aspect she did move forward she moved forward, forward from her mom and and shop and became a celebrity who some you know documentary filmmaker decades later seeks out and wants to make a documentary of. Yeah, the whole ending seemed to me very Peter's Peter's way, and and it kind of ended on a sad note that. She was looking for something, and in the end, it's not even about the original purpose. It's just some kind of a... It seems like the, the disc has been rolling long enough that now it's now it's only about the chase aspect of it. And uh, she never gets to know what, what happened to, to this guy who has been dead for a long time. I, on the other hand, I, I took the ending as, as quite hopeful. Actually, oh. I I I saw the road that she managed to walk, despite all of it. I saw that she came to accept that he wasn't coming probably ever back to her life by when she got to her thirties or forties, and perhaps it was a lot of it was part of that that she would not be entirely the same person or looking the same as he would then remember her as being so it would be kind of a wasted effort and time to move on type of thing she certainly seems to have moved on when she became the elderly interviewed person but seemed to waste a hell of a lot of time well i i i guess it's it's this disagreement between the two of us that's gonna frame the second half of of today's episode so for you, it's a heartfelt artistic film, and, and Satoshi Kon. To me, it's, yeah. it's it definitely is that. Okay. I, I I would say it's it's more than than Perfect Blue was. Not not in in the sense that Perfect Blue wouldn't be stemming from the heart, or Satoshi Kon's heart wouldn't be in the film. That that's not what what I mean. But Satoshi Kon obviously is extremely passionate. And and with full heart making both of these movies, but in in its core, to me, Millennium Actress is is kind of the 
it's the lighthearted film, the, the, the film that, that leaves you with a good feeling. And, and the film that say, says to you that it's okay and it's gonna be okay. Even with, with all the horrors and, and the, the hardships, it, it's still okay and, and you didn't waste your time in, when, when you were studying and, you know, keep on going forward. Life's beautiful, world is beautiful, there are beautiful, beautiful things, even if you never really reach the destination. And at the end, end of your life, that's nothing more than, you know, you embarking the next chase into yeah. the next journey as Chiyoko herself feels on her deathbed. And Death. Perfect Blue, on the other hand, is, is the film about, well, the industry is shit and... People are horrible, and you're gonna lose your mind. And yeah, it's it's kind of it's it's this dark-hearted, more nihilistic take on on life, and also on on whole whole celebrity thing. Like as as I already said to me, perfect uh, millennium actress is showcasing a working relationship between an idol and a fan. A relationship where even though it's still it started as one-sided it led into some type of connection which was healthy and beneficial to both of them it could be it's just this remains as a fact is that she gets to her deathbed and then she seems to be the most content and happy that how things have evolved. And a lot is to, there to be thanked for the reporter for kind of bringing out maybe the, the, the demons of the past and kind of sorting it out on, on her head as she goes on with the story. But but yeah, yeah, yeah it's, just, it's sad. Now she's content when she's dying. Well, the part where I'm going to disagree with, with you on that is I, I took that she was contempt in, in you, you know, before the deathbed scene also. Yeah. Like, like there are moments with her throughout the film where I took it that she was being genuinely contempt and genuinely happy. Okay. Like, for example, all those LARPing sessions that, that she has with the documentary director. Oh, that's quite fun, I have to admit. By the way, what was that Henrik talking about all that? Life is happy and... Or was that the, the movie talking via Henrik? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm still a fiend in my heart, so... Oh. Most definitely was the film talking. Phew. <laughs> I'm I'm like don't don't worry, Kari. Once we stop stop today's session, I I promise you I I will be get back to <laughs> you know, fixing. There was a lot of, a lot of material cutting involved in Hubo episode, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you know you know being being the bad guy in the in the flick lab, it's it's hard but honest work. <laughs> it's it's a twenty four seven job. What do you think about this? That Satoshi Kon wanted to to embrace the unlimited possibilities of animation and hope 
hoped films like Millennium Actress would continue the trend because the animation is complete freedom of the mind. Like, is it just a love letter to to, to Japanese cinema? And uh, do you do you think that actually Chatosi Kon's whole era, his films, are they all about love, Henrik? Mm, I don't think they are all about love. Um, it it gets a bit tricky uh, because today's films, Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress, well, they they most definitely are love. In in Millennium Actress, it's it's sweet. Even though at times bittersweet and imperfect blue, it's it's poisonous and tainted and disgusting. When it comes to paprika, when it comes to paranoia agent, if if we now count in paranoia agent, that mm. being being a TV series and and not a film, uh, there I I'm not entirely certain if they are about love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I keep myself from making a statement, what? yay or nay. I'm I'm not gonna make it today. Uh, when it comes to what Millennium Actress is, in my opinion, as you as you word out, it most definitely is a love letter to, to well, well, Japanese studio system and and Japanese cinema. Definitely, it's it's also a love letter to to Japanese animation. Seeing how painstakingly the film was done, how much Shadoshi Kon demanded that the film is not done using using computers. So on on that record, yes, yes, it it, it is a love letter. I I also, you know, it, with with the risk of of repeating myself. I also see Millennium Actress as a, as a sister piece to Perfect Blue. Like as as a, like you mentioned already at the beginning of of the episode. It it's like the the other side of the coin, the mm. other side of of fan. Could this also be kind of a continuation statement from Perfect Blue that Satoshi Khan values the past cinema and uh, art of of japan on screen but uh, do you find any suggestion that this would be a, indeed a hate letter towards the what the industry has become or how, how the art is now a millennium actress in in my opinion no no if, if we want to to see the hate letter i i would say perfect blue is that i wouldn't say that millennium Actress, in my opinion, it's not even a hate letter against the history of Japan. Even though that history perhaps is is the thing that Millennium Actress is the most critical of. It is shown that also the the behind the scenes shenanigans, and in Millennium Actress. It, it, you are being shown kind of the more more jealous, the more evil side of what happens, you know, behind the scenes of a film production. But that usually is tied down only to, well, one, max two characters. There, there is the 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 counter actress, Tuchioko, who, well, well, perhaps is the main antagonist 
of of the film. Mm. The film doesn't really have a clear antagonist. It it has two antagonistic characters of forces. That there is that that cop character who keeps showing up a couple of times throughout the throughout the film. He is he is the evil of Japanese history. The the cop who tortures left left leaning thinkers and artists and and gets them killed who at the end of the film comes to Chiyoko to apologize for his actions before the war and the person he was not not really truly an antagonist and then there is Chiyoko's counter actress who who is is kind of a more more I I don't like Chiyoko type of character in the film but even even she doesn't really do anything that big except she steals that key at one point that being the, the main villainous thing that you are being shown within the film itself everything else happens off off camera so to say and if you want to read it that way if you want to see him as an evil character as a as a corrupt character there's also the director who who is being given the Chiyoko's key and who then hides that said key into his bookshelf in in order to, you know to, to have a happy marriage with with Chiyoko or something like that i didn't see him either as a as a real really evil or bad character to me he he to me he appeared as a as someone who kind of wanted to take the key away so that Chiyoko could move past the painter and you yeah. know have have now have this this second best marriage well now that you paint it in that light then it's it it doesn't seem like such of a bad decision on the director's part yeah and- that of course still is my reading and I can't say that I'm more right or correct than necessarily you in your reading. Yeah, yeah. And I, and don't, I don't take it as any kind of a word of gospel. Yeah, don't don't take my words as any kind of gospel as well. I have to maybe correct something that I said prior about the painting. At least on the first date, the painting is not revealed, but the painting is somehow revealed. Is it just the product of Chiyoko's imagination, then um, I would have to probably check the film for the third time, I guess, for that. But there is this painting uh, where there's a figure in a snowy landscape. Uh, For Satoshi Kon, I guess the painting is about film. There's even a quote from the director, quote, Chiyo, directing films is very similar to painting. A painter paints the color he likes on his canvas. So something about the change of art going on here. Is it is it there there's this theory as well that that by the end the, the end quote it's referring to the chase of of art in a way. In a way I I can I can see that reading that was not what came to my mind but mm. There certainly is, you, you can see it that way. Because also when, when it comes to art, when it comes to, to filmmaking, 
as I've had to find out the hard way, you, you start the project. Whatever art you are making, you start the project. You, you have this image in your head. Like, this is what's gonna look like. This is how my film is gonna look like. This is how my painting or my sculpture is gonna be like. And you can see it very clearly in your mind. And then you start to do it and everything goes to hell. Like, like nothing works. Especially in, in film or video games where you have to kinda, you have to pass your vision to another person and, and you can't really, really like force that person to see, see what you have seen in your head. Like uh, you, you start to describe it. This is how I see this shot. Like the light comes from that angle, the characters are here and then the character turns and says the line here. And, and you, you can, you can try to, to, to like, like storyboard it to hell and explain it in detail, but there's always going to be the element that the other, uh, another person will have his or her own own kind of a image in, in their head, uh, how they see it. And it's not never going to be like one-on-one. -on -one. There's always going to be something that's going to be lost on translation. And even if you would do it all by yourself, like you can do with, with, with painting or with canvas or, or with, with sculpture, you never actually can reach completely what you have been reaching for. So like Chiyoko is chasing the painter and never finds him, never reaches him, the, the best she is left with in Millennium Actress is, is, is small messages, an image of her as a, as a younger woman, as a younger girl, painted in in a in, on on a wall of some building or a letter that that she finally gets. The, those those are such kind of a breadcrumbs on on a road, like like high like highlining points, but they never actually the the journey never ends. She never reaches what she's truly trying to chase, and that's also what what happens with with art projects. So sometimes you get closer, sometimes you are way off the mark. Sometimes you, you get these, these, these small, more, small wins, more su successes where you really nail that one part. Like, God damn, my mobile games, 3D characters, they, they look exactly like I thought. And then you find out that the game me mechanics does not work. And the puzzles you were thinking in your head, you, you can't create. Or, or you manage to create them, but turns out they are shit. Yeah. Great to see this kind of a Trom Lyle or here in the podcast. And I'm kind of into this kind of a weird shite. So I'd be happy to delve more deeply in the, in the future in this kind of stuff. And I suppose by virtue of doing this episode, we will return to Satoshi Kon later on. Well, seeing how Satoshi Kon is is one of the the kind of iconized masters of anime, lost like yeah, Einstein's but... of the form. I I guess we some someday have to. Yeah, I guess we could take another tangent to talk about how the death of the artist uh, affects that iconizing, 
Kubo and Satoshi Kon. Perhaps, yeah. Perhaps also, because when it comes to Satoshi Kon, well, there is that, that manga book that, that he started, never finished, was later published by at least Dark Horse called Opus, which also has become somewhat of a holy relic, at least some anime communities. Because it's it's the the final unfinished masterpiece of the grand master, so I I would say at, at least in in Opus you can see, well well if not completely at least some aspects of of, of precisely this effect going on. There's quite a lot of aspects that we could discuss about Satoshi Kon, and in the next one we will indeed kind of shine the light on on that topic more. Would you like to go to quickies? Well, certainly. Why not? Special mention for an actor. Our actress goes to... Well, in, in my side, from the two films, uh, my pick will go to Millennium Actress. It goes to main character, Chiyoko's voice, Japanese voice actor, Fumiko Orikasa part. Okay, the youngest one. I kind of enjoyed in Millennium Actress the, the warm and comforting and wise voice of what I believe to be is Miyoko Shochi, the old Chiyoko. I think it was great and perfect blue. There are some convincing screams from many characters in the film. I, I feel like I'm almost there. Junko Iwao plays Mima in perfect blue and that was good stuff. What resonated with you the most? Well, in, in case it, it hasn't be, become already super obvious, it is the questions of, of fandom and, and fan culture and, and the whole idol industry that, that we have. Like, that, that's the, the aspect that I've been most ranting and, and foaming my mouth off here today. And that, that's, that to me, it was the biggest biggest point between these two films. It even let me, once again, think even our own podcast and what it can mean. Why are we actually watching Satoshi Kon tonight? How did you, if you want to tell your relationship with Hope, how did you get into watching Satoshi Kon and why is it here now? Well, if, if, we, if we start with why it's here now uh well i i have a confession to make <laughs> uh following following the last episode when which was hellraiser the the recording session went to the to the fucking 3 a.m and i had a wake up at six seven because, for me yeah. snow snowy commercial shooting so as a as a result of of well not recording session but but basically everything that was going on in my life at the moment, I had a I had a slight burnout, which led into me not being able to watch anything. Like million hours of film, five five artistic movies in preparation for the next episode. So I am cheapskating here that the best I can. I propose to you that we watch only one movie. You... Made the case that we should watch two, and well, you you were right. We got more talk 
when we watch both Millennium Actress and and Perfect Blue, and we managed to get into the whole whole fandom conversation much more deeply. Thanks to your recommendation and decision here. But that's essentially is, is the reason why we are watching watch just two movies and why we didn't delve super deeply into Shatoshi Kon as a as a as a director, as a person, like what was he about? What was Satoshi Kon trying to say through the the entire body of his work? That's all on me. Well, I, I me, think me, me being a goddamn weakling and not managed to pull my weight on on the podcast. Well, I think we made exactly the right decision for this episode. Like that, th- th- these are, as we have noticed, <laughs> there there's a lot that you can discuss around these these films. Uh, I don't know how much we actually talked about these individual films here, more than we talked about everything around it. But um, I don't see the, the, the bad in that necessarily. This is good, the primer, and we will complete this in the next one with Satoshi Kon. Yeah. Did you answer your second question? Why Satoshi Kon? Um, I kind of found originally this was before anime became like the thing that it is in Finland today this this was during the times when when anime was kind of a breaking ground in Finland uh, back in those days we still had this this small brigand mortal DVD stores I was visiting one of those I was actually browsing browsing the, the hentai section. When accidentally, I I also got into the artistic, more serious anime film, film department, and I never, I I don't know, like I I never been able to understand why exactly did I pick up Perfect Blue from the shelf? The the cover is is not really that that astonishing. In my opinion, it's actually pretty lame. The back cover description, what the film is all about, was kind of like, is a is a pop idol wants to become a, a become actress. Didn't really work for me. I guess the DVD just happened to be cheap or something. I it was kind of an accidental purchase on my end. And and then uh, uh, I finally watched it. I was like, oh my god, this is actually really good. I want to see more from this director and following that line I have slowly been buying and checking out well all of Korn's films and also the Paranoia Agent series and I kind of have had this this idea that it it would be nice to talk about Korn in in some episode especially ever since he died 2010 and now is is widely talked about as as the the lost masters, and and we have this whole discussion how well we only have Miyazaki and once Miyazaki is gone, it's all shit. All the masters are gone. So I I Satoshi Kon has kind of been a long time coming in a, in a sense. I I finally got it, Henrik. We have to fake our death so we get more listeners. And and live stream it. <laughs> in a, in one adjective, how would you describe these films? 
Or you can pick two for each, one for each, if you want. Uh, to me, well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go pick two. So for perfect blue, it is it is dark. It is definitely dark. And for Millennium Actress, it is hopeful. What I have chosen for Perfect Blue is something that you can you can you can apply it to basically all of Satoshi Kon's films, but overlapped certainly. Millennium Actress, voluptuous, which it certainly is, and it was a bit frustrating for me. It will be less frustrating when you have watched it once. It is, especially on on the first watch. It it can be a bit taxing, yeah. because that the film's narrative uh, kind of goes bonkers extremely fast. Would you consider to watch these films ever again? Uh, most definitely, yes. Uh, to to me, Millennium actress actress is is the easier to watch because it's it's not so dark and so grim as I find Perfect Blue. But both of them on on my end, I, I see them as as quite actually anime masterpieces. I, I have to join the, the Shatoshi Kon band camp here and and chill for Kon. <laughs> but yeah, I, I will be checking these films out. Not necessarily immediately, May once again be like like a like a year, maybe two years. But I I kinda know that I will be seeing these again at at some point, at some date. At some date. I don't feel compelled to watch this right now, but later perhaps. It is very artistic and a lot of love has been put into these films. Do you think the films have any staying power legacy which is kind of a stupid question because they already have that but uh, maybe from this moment onwards mm, well that question is is kind of pointless whenever we are dealing with a film that that has cult following or is building cult following yeah it's just like this has been staying quite powered for the last 20 years these both films and his whole production, I would say, but th- this will be celebrated by the otakus out there as some of the finest of what anime has to offer. I, I personally, if you really want my honest view, I, I usually tend to gravitate towards actually even more fantastical films than than these ones that that are less focused on the human worlds, which in a way have less restrictions even. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, this will stay in the limelight. And since you already mentioned the fact that the author's death you usually help the proceedings, well, I I have to agree with you on on that notion. Shadowshi Kon as as uh, has has already passed, and following his death, there was a surgeon's with you know the, the the public coverage on on these films and Shadowshi Kon's life and work and i do believe that that fact 
that the fact that Shadashi Khan is no longer with us, it will also help these films to know, to have a legacy and to stay in, in the public light. Did you get a feeling of having experienced movie magic? I suppose the obvious answer is yes. Well, yeah. 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 Would you recommend Perfect Blue Millennium Actress? I would. Most definitely. Uh, if if I would have to like say something more about the films, I do feel that Millennium Actress is is the easier one to to sit through. Oh yeah. Uh, it, it it has it has that lighter tone. It's it's not as as heavy film as a Perfect Blue, and because of that, it's easier to pop in. It's also a film that that has more jokes in it. So when you want something a bit more casual to, to check out, uh, in, in that case, I, I would say Millennium Actress. I, I would recommend you saving Perfect Blue for those days when you feel like you can actually, you know, sit through something that, that can be a bit taxing experience. So there's a there's a lot of grime that goes in into Perfect Blue. So perhaps if you're feeling like super melancholic, if you have an average finish today, maybe maybe not check out check out Perfect Blue Blue then. Just maybe wait for a sunny day before you pop it in. But most definitely, yeah, a recommendation from my end. Yeah, and even though as I've been trying to frame Millennium Actresses. Uh... Also, a kind of a harrowing story in a certain sense. I have to agree that, of course, Perfect Blue is the the more twisted film here. And if you're an anime fan, yes, most definitely you will like Perfect Blue. If you're not, well, honestly, I don't know. Did I like the film personally? Yes, yes, I did. But it's this kind of a fringe audience movie, perhaps. You you have to have another level of of uh, liking cinema. I think that you will enjoy it. This... Since since you mentioned being an anime fan, well, I I guess we can ask the question: Would these films make anyone into an anime fan? Why not? Well, if you are into seeing more than cutesy characters and anime nipples then yeah yeah i i on my end i i i can see that perhaps millennium actress could have that effect i'm not entirely certain with perfect blue that may be a film that that works well that that requires that that you are a fan or are an anime fan or at least you tolerate anime and you know what anime is I, I don't see that perfect I, I don't necessarily see perfect blue as an any kind of a transitioning piece for anyone to get into anime. Uh there are those people who say that they just just hate anime because it's just a personal feeling that they they get from anime that maybe there is something about the jerky movements of of anime or or uh, how the backgrounds might be kind of not so a animated or or the expressions of the uh, anime characters, what what have you? Personally, I don't have this problem. Millennium actress 
it's kind of the same answer. Yes, I would recommend it. Millennium Actress is what I'd mainly recommend from Satoshi Kon's body of work. If I had to recommend something, then Millennium Actress is a good starting point. Henrik, you really know you're watching Perfect Blue and perhaps Millennium Actress when? When fi finding your keys from some place, since you have obviously misplaced them, you, you drunken podcast host, all of a sudden leads, leads into you hallucinating yourself dancing on, on top of the street lights and possibly <laughs> stabbing someone in the dick. Oh, that that shot, yeah, where this Mima avatar is uh, jumping on top, top of the streetlights in this nightly scene. The most memorable shot for me, I would say, yeah, out of this. Well, you really know you're watching Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress when you're on an endless pursuit for love, which, when unmasked, is actually an all-consuming obsession. I bet you loved that simplification. <laughs> oh, anything else about his body of work? I guess we can touch on that on a later date. I would actually save that discussion for for a later episode. Yeah, but definitely if you're into this kind of things, check out the book. High recommendation. And it's been once again a pleasure dissecting some crazy cinema here, Henrik. Any thoughts before the outro? Not really, not on my end. Thank you also to, to you, Kari, for once again sitting through one more episode. Oh, well, yeah, thank you as well for introducing Satoshi Kon to me. So, in the next episode, we're going back to South Korea once again, looking at the career of Nahon Ching, the director of the Chaser thriller, The Yellow Sea, and what could it be mainly considered as a horror, I suppose, is, is, is The Wailing. So it's gonna be thrillers and, and horror. <laughs> once again. Oh boy. Beyond that, we would like to invite you to continue very <laughs> lively yet thoughtful and uh, understanding discussions regarding the films that we have been talking about today with us online in our Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, social medias, and Twitter. And we'll hope, of course, that you will support our mission and rate us on Apple Podcasts. That actually helps. Thank you for joining us and see you in a fortnight. Until then. I am I am the bad guy of the podcast. <laughs>